Good morning, and welcome to day two of the conference, a day devoted to the discussion of bioethics and international health. I hope that the first day, which focused on genetic engineering and cloning, was an enjoyable as well as an enlightening one. Although today may not be devoted to the discussion of genetic engineering, many aspects of these issues are essential to any meaningful discussion of issues in bioethics and international health. As new technologies increasingly affect our ability to diagnose disease, prescribe drugs, and predict illness, we must begin to examine their effect on the many topics you will be discussing throughout the day. One person who has already begun to think about these issues is Dr. Steve Fodor, President and CEO of Affymatrix Corporation. Dr. Fodor is the principal scientist involved in the development of the gene chip, which has been heralded as the keystone for the next phase in genetic technology, eventually allowing scientists to have a greater hand in predicting, diagnosing, and curing many of the diseases involved in issues of international health. Dr. Fodor, a Princeton alumnus, received his PhD in chemistry in 1985. Following a postdoctoral fellowship at UC Berkeley, Dr. Fodor joined Affymax, where he began his work leading to the development of the gene chip and his eventual founding of Affymatrix. It is now my extreme pleasure to introduce Dr. Steve Fodor. It's a pleasure to be here today. In fact, I have to commend everyone for actually getting out of bed on a, sun, on a Saturday, I guess, not Sunday, Saturday, and, and coming. Yeah, I kind of forgot what it was um, like not to be in Princeton after about 13 years, coming back and uh, after been in California for about the last 13 years. You come back here and it's cold. <laughs> I haven't been used to that. Um, <clears throat> So I'd like to first thank the, uh, the bioethics staff for the wonderful uh, invitation and the chance to come and tell you about our technology. And this has been an extremely well-run uh, symposium. And I, I think I only really have one thing to say about it, and uh, I want to know whether you guys want a job. <laughs> um, you know, having a commercial background, <clears throat> we'll talk about that later. Uh, having a commercial background um, really brings a different bent, I think, to some of the the, uh, the ethics uh, around the subject. And of course, uh, I'll tell you about the technology we've developed and some of the things that we can do with it, but it, it clearly opens up a lot of opportunities. Um, but it, it does have a commercial bent. And when thinking about the, the ethics about that, I, I was talking to a friend of mine um, who whose father actually used to run a dry cleaning um, place in New York City. And what he said to me was his dad talked to him about ethics once, and he said that what he used to do is every day when the clothes would come in, he'd go through the pockets and so on to make sure that there wasn't anything in them before he put them to the dry cleaners. And so one day he went through and he found a $100 bill. And so he said his ethical problem was whether or not he was going to tell his partner. <laughs> so I said, you know, these ethics are sort of in the eye of the beholder in many ways. And, and, and I think that the, the whole genome and, and what's happening with sequencing the human genome and many other organ, uh, organisms, you know, really present us with, with some wonderful scientific and commercial opportunities. And uh, we're, we're really in the early days of this. And in fact, the technology I'll tell you about uh, in its early days was actually funded in large part by the NIH, by the NSF. Uh, DOE and so on, uh, and the and the genome initiatives, um, the 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 commercial applications I think are great, 
Uh, there's a tremendous number of medical scientific applications. We'll go through some of those. Um, and of course, ethics also has to do with what are the good things you can do, and what are the what are the values you can create, and what are the things you can, you can uh, actually um, uh, create for for people moving forward. So, with that, I'd like to just start off. And uh, as you recall, yesterday uh, Francis Collins uh, talked a lot about the the genome and where it was going. And this slide, as you can see, has the has the genome being sequenced over the years. I've, I've actually been using this slide since about 1993 to talk about Affymetrics and what we're doing. Uh, and you can see here we have a target of 2005 for the entire 3 billion base pairs to be sequenced. Now, of course, we heard yesterday that that schedule is being moved up uh, under various pressures. And uh, it's actually now geared down towards, I think he said around 2003 or so on. And so that's really, that's fantastic. So. You know, the entire sequence of the human genome, you know, 3 billion base pairs, 100,000 genes, lots of variation, human diversity, things to study, things to look at. And so where we actually start off is, is sort of where the genome ends off. And what we, we think about now is how do we take that sequence, that sequence database that is generated through this activity, and essentially, as I'm going to tell you about, put it on chips. And of course, what you want to do is you want to study the variability of that sequence versus the biological function. And there's a lot of opportunities for that. Uh, and, and here, I've just listed uh, a really sort of a fundamental few uh, uh, that we think about. Yeah, you can ask some, some my background is in physical chemistry, and, and whether you like that or not, I don't know, but we can talk about that. Um, but, but we sort of approach this from a physical chemist point of view, and it's to ask some very, very simple basic questions. You can take a DNA sequence and you can ask, you know, what is it, right? That's discovery. What does it do? You can say, uh, where is it? You map it on the genome, find out which chromosome it's on, how it's inherited from, from person to person. You can ask, uh, how much is there is expression? When, it, when a gene turns on and the mRNA comes on, how much is, what is the amplitude of that sequence? And you can ask, has it changed from individual to individual? And that's simply polymorphism screening. So it's very simple questions. You know, what is it, where is it, how much, and has it changed? So these are very physical questions that you can ask, and they generate an enormous number of, of, of technical and commercial opportunities. Now, the way that we've gone about this is to develop this technology. Uh, it's a technology in light-directed chemical synthesis. It combines uh, tricks from photolithography from the semiconductor industry. Uh, it involves this thing called combinatorial chemical synthesis, which I won't touch on at all because everybody gets really bored by it, but it actually is kind of neat. Um, and it, it's some detection technology to tell what you've done. And so it's really a combination of these things. And our original purpose was simply to generate arrays of chemical compounds to study molecular interactions. In this case, nucleic acid interactions. And we can do this in a very highly complex way. Um, you know, it's interesting. When you get into these fields, these are, these are highly multidisciplinary fields. And um, there's a, a story I heard when I was uh, an undergraduate about this, where, you know, you bring in biology, you bring in chemistry, you bring in physics. And it was, if it, if, it's, if it moves, it's biology. If it stinks, it's chemistry. And if it fails, it's physics. You know? And so, you know, you, you have to try to put all these things together and try to actually come up with something that works. And, you know, the corollaries of these things are if it, if it stinks and moves, it's biochemistry, right? And if it fails to move, it's biophysics. 
So, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how you went on all these things, but, uh, but somehow you, you see it through. Now, so, so what we're going to do is make these chips. And, and this field is moving very, very rapidly. And as I'll, as I'll talk, you'll see how the technology is spreading out. And I'm going to go through some, some pretty technical stuff, but I'm going to talk, I'll, I'll try to bring it home to a lot of the direct applications as we go through. Now, one of the things is that, you know, these technology fields, they, they change very, very rapidly. And, well, as do, as do a lot of things. And uh, there's a quote that I like to use that I think illustrates this well. And this was actually from Geraldine Ferraro. It says, it was not so long ago that people thought that semiconductors were part-time orchestra leaders and microchips were very, very, very small snack foods. Right? And so, you know, this is, this, is, this is what happened. The semiconductor industry, it, it wasn't so long ago that people thought about transistors and tubes. And now everybody thinks about chips and so on. It's very natural. And what we're seeing in the biotechnology industry are these technologies proliferating very, very quickly uh, and, and people accepting them very rapidly. Now, the, uh, the essence of the technology is really, uh, is really given here. What we do is we take a, a flat surface like glass and we chemically modify it with some, uh, essentially some linker molecules to, to get up off the surface. Uh, and we're going to do chemical reactions on the end of these linkers, uh, but they're all blocked from chemical reactions by these molecules that are just uh, shown here as red X's, and I won't go into the real chemistry on this. Uh, but what you do is you use a, a photolithographic mask, like is used in, to make a semiconductor, and you shine light on the surface. Okay, so basically it looks like a piece of, the mask looks like a piece of glass with some holes in it, and light shines through where the holes are. It goes down to the surface and deprotects some certain areas and activates them essentially for chemical coupling. Then what you do is you bring in a, a chemical, such as a, a nucleic acid base, and it reacts at the sites that you address by light. Okay? You bring in a new mass, a new chemistry, and so on, and repeat it, and it turns out what you can do is you can build these molecules on the surface. So what you're actually doing is building DNA on the surface. And as you all know, DNA is a double-stranded structure. What you do is you build one half of the, of the only one strand so that it can react with the complement from, from another sample. Now, since uh, you pay attention to how you illuminate and the order of reagents, you know where everything is on your surface. And since you're using light, you can miniaturize the whole thing. Okay? Now, <coughs> um, so it's, it's actually schematically very simple. Uh, you have light, it activates the surface, you bring in chemical reagents, and you just build up a matrix. Okay? And uh, you don't do this one at a time. You use all the tricks of the semiconductor industry. You can make thousands of these uh, at a time. We make these uh, on, you make them in a wafer, where you make multiple chips per wafer. You take out one of the chips, uh, the common, the largest size chip that we actually make measures about 1.28 centimeters on a side, so it's about the size of a dime, okay? And within that 1.28 centimeters, uh, in the commercial varieties of these, there's around 400,000 different uh, spots where you're synthesizing a different DNA molecule, okay? So what you have, and within each one of these spots, which measure about uh, um, a half to a fifth of a human hair diameter, depending on whose hair you're looking at, um, you have these patches of DNA, okay? So each one of these chips can have around 400,000 of these different patches, and of course you make these chips in batches just like you do semiconductors. So you can really bring out a lot of these. Now, 
we've taken this process and, of course, we've adopted a lot of the, the practices of the semiconductor industry, including the automation. Uh, to give you a feel for how many of these are actually made today, uh, in 1997, we made about 80,000 chips. That was our capacity. In 1998, it jumped up to around 400,000. And in fact, this year, uh, I don't know, we get, we get another quantum leap in this, but it's, it's actually, uh, uh, you, can, you can spit out a lot of these things. The capacity is probably in the millions at this point. The, um, we initially started out by taking an old national semiconductor plant and converting it to this type of chemistry since we've gone uh, to building new buildings and so on. But it is very, very similar to the, to the semiconductor process. Now, what you get out is, a, is, is the chip. And it's, it's actually a pretty simple device. Uh, it has a, a glass surface. The DNA is on the other side of this glass surface. There's a little chamber that you can incubate your sample on and so on and, and do your analysis. Um, if you look at the chip itself, as I mentioned, you synthesize one strand of the DNA on the surface. You bring in a complementary uh, strand. It hybridizes. You get a Watson structure. You, you have labeled this sample with a little fluorescent tag so that if you shine a laser on it, a different wavelength of light comes out so you can scan these things and do analyses. Uh, and uh, I guess I won't really go into this, but you shine a laser on it and so on, collect the light. It's pretty simple. But the actual commercial implication, uh, implementation of this has been done with Hewlett-Packard, uh, where they've built us a scanner that goes on the bench top and so on. So it's all gone all the way from, from sort of concept to manufacturing. Uh, I'll tell you about a lot of the applications and some of the implications as we go through. Uh, but you, know, you should realize is that this is actually becoming pretty common technology. Um, we, if, you, if you look back at over this last year, I think we probably placed about 135 of these systems just over the last year. We're placing them at a rate of about two or three per week right now. Okay? And it's, it's picking up a lot. This is becoming uh, a, a pretty good demanded uh, uh, item. Now, um, I'll show you a basic experiment, okay? And then we'll talk about some of the things you can, you can start to do with this. Um, this is a, a really simple experiment, again, that we did back in the early 90s, where all you simply did was to build a very simple sequence on the chip the, the sequence CGC, AT, CCG, okay? about as simple as you can get. And you do it at four different spots here. And you bring in the fluorescently tagged complementary sequence. Just put these things together, totally passive system. They hybridize. And what you can see is the DNA complement sticks here. You raise the temperature. You can melt it off. It goes back together. It functions very nicely thermodynamically. So this is really uh, just sort of the basics. And all the rest of the experiments are really built upon this very simple idea. All you're really looking at is you synthesize something somewhere, and then you look at the intensity of something that binds to it. And now you can tell all sorts of information about its sequence. Okay? So what do you do with it? Well, I'm not going to go into how you actually uh, come up with the strategies on synthesis, but I'm going to show you a, a representative few, and then what, and, and then, and then what their applications are. So, <clears throat> let's say, for example, we have in our database a gene. Say, for example, you know, a breast cancer gene, or p53. And what we do is we say we'd like to know whether or not there are any mutations in an individual in that gene. Okay? So we know what the sequence is, the reference sequence. 
So we can synthesize a set of probes to probe that particular sequence. So say, for example, we're just interested in, in that particular base right there. It's a T. Okay. Well, we can synthesize a complementary sequence all along that frame that has an A there, because as you recall, A binds to T. Okay. And all these are complementary. And of course, when you hybridize this long piece of DNA from a, from a patient, it should hybridize to that particular probe. Okay. Well, in addition, if they were interested, well, has that T changed to a different base? Well, you can also synthesize the, the same probe with a C, G, or T there. Because if this is changed in a single base substitution, we could tell whether or not it binds to one of these four. Okay? So I use four probes here to interrogate each base. So if this base is 1,000 long, all I have to use is 4,000 probes. And I can tell you whether or not there's been a change in any one of those 1,000 spots. Okay? If it's, and that's actually no issue because, as I, as I mentioned, we're commercializing things with 400,000 probes. And we'll talk about where that goes in a few minutes. And so if you're interested in the next position over, of course, you just move everybody over by one. So you just tile through the sequence. Okay? And this shows uh, just uh, how the hybridization uh, works. This is a, a, just a little magnified piece of one of these arrays. And here it is. This exact sequence here is built. The four probes are listed right here. Okay, so there's the one with the with the A, with the C, with the G, and the T. The A one lights up. So this is a wild type sample. Okay, right at that position. Okay. Now, if you look down here, if there's a single base substitution, what you see is the wild type no longer lights up, but the G lights up, which means the position there is a C. It's very simple, very straightforward. You don't need to know how the technology works at this point. All you need to do is to be able to look at these images and look at the intensity. And that's what a lot of this is going to be about. Okay. <laughs> so, what can you do? Well, this is a very early experiment we did. This is P53, you know, common uh, gene implicated in probably, I think, around 90% of human cancers in, uh, that has uh, mutations in this gene. <clears throat> this is exon 5. This is a, from a, a single hair root. Amplify up the gene out of this hair root, stick it on one of these chips, and then hybridize it. And uh, the way this, this gene, this particular chip is laid out, uh, this is the A, C, G, and T probe. And so you can just read off the sequence. It's G, T, A, C, A, C, G, so on. And you just read it off like a DNA sequencing gel. Although you haven't run a gel or anything, all you've done is hybridize this thing. Okay? So it's very simple. Uh, this is very early. You can see there's a lot of things going on. I'm, I'm not going to spend time on that. Uh, this eventually made its way into a product. Uh, that has all, uh, which has exons 2, 3, 11 and P53 on it, plus around, a, a, I think, around 300 known mutations for P53 that are specifically coded for on this chip. And this eventually uh, made its way into a, a regular commercial product. Another area that you might uh, think of, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a couple of very simple applications of the technology, uh, and then I'm going to show how it leads into much more broad applications into human genetics and into human diversity and, and what we're doing there. Um, this is a, a, uh, a collaboration that we had with Francis Collins and looking at the breast cancer gene. And uh, this, of course, is, a, is another good candidate gene for this type of technology. Uh, it, it accounts, uh, as, as Francis was talking, about 45% of inherited breast cancers. It's thought mutations in this gene are, are responsible. It's linked in about 80% of breast ovarian families. Uh, female carriers have a high lifetime risk of breast, breast cancer. 
and it has a relatively high frequency of mutation throughout the gene. So it's a good candidate for diversity for this uh, technology, lots of different mutations and so on. And in fact, uh, uh, Francis and uh, Joe Hasia in his lab have developed a series of chips that go through BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, the, a the ATM uh, gene, and so on, and are actually using this now in some clinical studies uh, 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 from the NCI. Um, another area, genetics are obviously not, not uh, uniquely uh, human. You can think about virology. You can think about bacteriology. Uh, we've developed, use this technology to look at um, uh, HIV resistance, where we're actually typing the virus within an individual, an infected individual. And of course, this is very important because mutations in the virus come up that confer drug resistance. Uh, and there are a number of these, both in the protease gene and in the polymerase gene. And we have a product that's been on the market for some time and is, in fact, used in, in clinical reference labs uh, to do that. And uh, basically, it, again, tiles through simple software that just presents the relative intensity of the four different probes in these different positions. And uh, uh, what you can see in this particular example, this is a patient uh, before treatment with an antiviral drug. Uh, Post-treatment, and it's probably difficult to see, but there's been a C to A uh, uh, transition here where this patient is now resistant to the Merck uh, drug Crixivan. Okay, So it's a very rapid way to go in and, and do that. Now, there's another aspect of the technology is to not worry so much about what the particular sequence is, but can you do like a simple pattern matching? And this is important in, in, in just simple identification. And this will come into human identification in a few minutes. <coughs> and so Tom Gingeris took a look at uh, a mycobacterium uh, application where he took uh, the gene out of mycobacterium tuberculosis that confers the rifampin resistance, the drug resistance, and made a chip out of it. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and this is a, a, a pretty straightforward experiment. It's only using around 700 bases of this. But he reasoned uh, that if you start to look at the mycobacterium TB sequence, and now you look at related species of mycobacterium, what you find are there are polymorphisms or differences in these species. Okay, And of course, uh, these should show up in changes in hybridization intensity. And in fact, that's what you see. Here's mycobacterium TB against itself, and you see the chip pretty much lighting up. Now you look at some of these different species of mycobacterium, avium. Gordonia and so on, as you go through, you can see these patterns are all different. So what you're doing is you're getting a pattern that is species specific on this. And in fact, you can decompose these into simple barcodes. Okay. So you don't need to analyze the sequence at all. You have enough complexity on this thing. You simply hybridize a sample to it. You get a unique pattern. You get a barcode. So it's an, an identification tag. So uh, this, is, this is in bacteriology. And these are, in fact, going into products. Uh, BioMaru, which is a, a, a French company, has moved these things into bacterial identification. They go into clinical trials this year for mycobacterium. Uh, they're also going to start using this approach for doing water testing in Europe and so on. And so this is very rapidly moving into these clinical applications. Now, <coughs> the, the implications on this are, you know, I think it's a very simple implication, and that's if you ask the question, you know, because you can do pattern matching or uh, identification barcoding with bacteria, can you do this with humans? And of course, the answer is, of course you can. Okay? Technology allows you a very simple way to go in and take simple genetic signatures in, in unique patterns. 
Uh, there's a lot of applications of this, and there's a lot of very good things you can do with it, and I'm going to go through that in a little more detail now. So the question comes in uh, as, you, as you start to look at um, genetics is a much bigger question, and that is the whole question about human polymorphisms. So I love this slide because it's so, well, it's kind of faceless, right? So it, it's good when you, when you think about genetic data not to put direct faces on it at, at this point. Um, but it's, it's, it's sort of silly uh, to say you measure the genetic differences between individuals. And, you know, it's a silly comment, um, but at the same time, uh, it's actually, uh, it's pretty amazing. You know, if you think about what, what's, what's really happening here, there are three billion base pairs, and if you look at any two individuals, what we're finding as we screen through this, and I'll show you some of the results, is that basically, you know, everybody is identical to about uh, one in a thousand, okay? So, so 99.99%, I guess that is, or not 99.9, you're identical to the neighbor sitting next to you, okay? And if you just lay these sequences out, what you find is that around every 700, 800 bases or so, you'll find a change, single base change. This is what uh, Francis was talking about yesterday, these single nucleotide polymorphisms. And they're common. You know, 20 to 50% of the people have the same ones, or they have different perturbations of these. And so there appears to be this large pool of these polymorphisms that are exchanged from generation to generation okay, by crossover. So if you can start to understand this, start to map these things out, it opens up a whole new window of things that you can start to do. Um, now, you know, why would you want to do this? Well, there's some very straightforward reasons why you'd want to do it, okay? And I think you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, I think the common words are things like pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics. Okay? I, I'm not sure what the difference between these is all the time, um, but I know how people use them. And, um, and so I get confused by these, but I think uh, the important part is that it's pharma, and then there's some other stuff that goes on, okay? <laughs> so, <clears throat> but, so when we thought about this, we thought, well, what's the real way to think about the difference between these two? And it's actually pretty simple. It's a, it's a two-letter mutation. Right. So I, I think that's the, the, probably the most important difference between these words. Um, but the way people actually use them uh, is, is sort of like this. Pharmacogenomics is you know, the study of physiological response to pharmaceuticals using large-scale knowledge of the genome. Right? And it's largely studied with expression analysis or proteomics, whatever proteomics is. And, and so we're gonna, we'll talk maybe a little bit about expression analysis in a few minutes for the purpose, actually, of, of again, starting to look at, at diversity. Pharmacogenetics, well, of course, the important word is genetics, which is, has a little more definition uh, historically. And it's a study of genetic variation in patient response to pharmaceuticals. Okay, well, that's, now, now it's getting interesting, right? And, and it's actually getting commercially interesting because you can start to think about, well, Geez, can I can I start to think about custom prescriptions? You know, why when I do a clinical trial, do you know, 60% of the patients respond and the other 40% don't? Why are some of these chemicals cleared through the systems very quickly in some individuals, but they last for a very very long time in others? Are there differences in side effects, tox issues? So you know, if you can start to understand population differences towards this you start to look at, uh, at really understanding individual patient response 
to some of these to some of these pharmaceuticals. Now, that's not a small task. Okay? It's not as straightforward as saying, "Well, we'll just run a chip against it." There's a lot of study that has to go on, uh, and uh, uh, much of this is uh, in genetics. Also, we'll start with association studies and disequilibrium mapping, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's basically creating a map of the human genome, and w through markers and watching how these disperse. Okay, now we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. So, so we started to think, well, how can we really use this technology to get at this question? Can we really start to use it to screen for human diversity in a, in a major way, in a sort of a genome way, right? Just what you really want to do. So recall that if we think about a long sequence, and this could be the genome or any sequence you want, we talked about this idea of creating these sets of DNA fragments that go through the genome, okay, or that go through a long stretch of DNA. And you can build many different variations of these. And if you're talking about 400,000 probes per chip, even in this form where I use four probes for every position, that means that I could put 100,000 bases per chip. Okay. That's pretty impressive when you think about, you know, standard DNA sequencing technology does maybe, you know, 700 or 800 bases at a time. Okay. So we started to look into this, and a pretty clever guy uh, named Mark Chi at Affymetrix uh, started working back in around 92 or so on the mitochondrial genome. And so the mitochondrial genome was known, so 16.5 kilobases, okay, so a nice modest-sized genome. Uh, and of course, traditionally, if you want to find out whether there's any mutations within a human mitochondrial sequence, you'd go through and you'd take little, you know, 700 base fragments all the way through this thing, all the way until you get around to 16 and a half thousand bases. That's a big job. So what he, what he did was design a chip against this. And then by taking some PCR primers and going all the way around the circle, taking the entire sequence and hybridizing it to a chip, uh, he got the following result. Uh, here's the chip up here. Uh, this happens to have both the sense and the anti-sense strands on it. Here's hybridizing just the sense strand. Here's a tenfold blow up, another tenfold blow up and what you see a single base resolution all the way through the mitochondrial genome. So simple, simple hybridization experiment where uh, you know, just amplify up the, the mitochondrial sequence, a fluorescent tag, you put it on there, and boom, you get 16 and a half kilobases of information back. And it happens in an afternoon. Okay? And in fact, a technician in an afternoon can run a whole slew of these things. And in fact, this is what we found, because when we started this project, we talked to people about well, we'll collaborate with you, and you know you have all these refrigerator full of all these mitochondrial sequences, and you send them to us, and we'll check the sequences. Well, what we found out was when we made the chip, and we went to do that, very, very few people had actually gone to the trouble of actually sequencing all these, and we found ourselves then, um, you know, one technician in an afternoon could run six of these or so without any trouble at all, and we just flooded with data. And that brings up a whole other issue about data management and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, but we did a series of things where we looked at some control samples of, of mitochondria that contained uh, uh, something like 180 different polymorphisms, and we found you know, 179 out of them. We published this in Science back in around uh, 85, uh, 95, excuse me, 85. 85, I'm still here. Um, so anyway, this was, this, was, this was pretty neat. And, um, and so it got us really thinking about well, how can we really start to apply this to build some new tools? So, about this time, uh, Eric Lander approached us. 
at the Whitehead at uh, MIT. And we started talking about, well, look, if, if we can start screening through the genome, and if we can pick up these single base polymorphisms that are common throughout the population, we can use them as markers, okay? So we can take a long strand of DNA, and we can find these markers that are spaced throughout the genome, and they're like signposts, right? So you have a chromosome, and you know at different positions within a chromosome these markers, and when you watch from, you know, uh, parents to siblings, you can watch, you know, where the crossovers occur, which markers went with, you know, from which parent went to which child, and you can start to track down in genetic diseases where, uh, you know, what is the business uh, part of the DNA or the problem in, in, a, in a genetic disease. And so uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but the first goal was to find these markers. Can we use the technology to efficiently find these markers? And then I'll just go ahead a little bit. Once we find the markers, I'll tell you we design a new chip that detects these markers all in aggregate, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the first part is to find them. And so uh, we started a collaboration with the Whitehead Institute and with the Sanger Center, where we took these, uh, we took 21,400 STSs. These are sequence tag sites. These are snippets of DNA information dispersed throughout the genome, but you know where they are, okay? And we took those, uh, it turned out to be about 27 megabases. Uh, we took, and we, and, and we took eight individuals, okay? And, uh, and this is another subject, we, we picked um, um, eight Caucasians for this study. Uh, it turns out the markers we found are present, and I'll just jump ahead a little bit, in basically all uh, populations on Earth to about 80%. Um, what we did was we, we looked over eight individuals to look for variation in all these sequences. Uh, we did 185 chip designs, went through about 1,500 chips, and at Affymetrics it took one RA to do this. Okay. And uh, uh, this, is, this is the sort of screening that we do on these. This is, this, is, this is daily technology at this point. This is per chip, remember, this is a chip about the size of a dime still. This is uh, 30 kilobases. It's actually 60 kilobases because we do both the forward and reverse strands. Uh, 30 kilobases in one hybridization experiment, uh, and you just screen all this at once. And we've come up with some tools to find where these polymorphisms are. This is a bunch of different uh, individuals, but basically what we do is we look for these, we call them footprints. I'll tell you that there's a polymorphism there, so you catalog them and so on. Uh, and we went through this process where we find lots of these markers. Uh, we check to make sure that they're nice, uh, they, they're diverse throughout the population. We map them. We make sure they hybridize well, and we prune them all to a good set, okay? So what we've done is we've just gone through all the chromosomes, we've found all these markers, pruned them down to a good set, and we're gonna put them on a, a, a single assay, okay? Now, now I, w I just wanna comment about this for a second, about this, about this assay. Think about, with, just say take 2,000 of these markers, because that's actually the commercial version that's coming out in a couple months. 2,000 markers, throughout the genome dispersed on different chromosomes. There are, because of recombination from generation to generation, there are two raised to the exponent 2,000 different permutations of this, okay? This chip has the capacity, uh, and in fact does, give a unique signature for everybody on the planet. Very simple, simple assay, single hybridization, a couple hours, you get a genotype 
of an individual, and it is, it, and it is a, a signature uh, for each individual. Uh, this is how, if you take these things and you, and you actually, uh, this is how it works, and again, you know, I think for the user, they don't really need to know this, but I know since you're just dying to know this, I'll tell you. Um, this, is, this is a very simple polymorphism in hepatic lipase, single nucleotide polymorphism, where about 50% uh, of the people either have an A of disposition or they have a C of disposition. Okay? And so what you do in these genotyping chips, so we're no longer screening, we're going to just test for these things. What you do is you, 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 you design the array such that you have two panels, for, you have a panel for each version of this. So you have a little subsection of the array as if it was an A, and then you have a little subsection of the array as if it was a C. Okay? And since you carry two copies of every gene, if you have an AA, then what happens is the A panel lights up. If you have a, a CC, the C panel lights up. And if you have a heterozygote, so you have both copies, both panels light up. Okay. Very simple. Okay. And in fact, uh, we took this approach <coughs> and uh, made a first chip that contained around 600 of these. And as I mentioned, the commercial product that's coming out actually has 3,000, uh, but we're only uh, validating around 2,000 of these for, for general geno uh, genotyping purposes. So it really has created essentially a, 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 a third generation map of the human genome. This was published uh, in Science, I guess, around six, eight months ago. Um, these are the different chromosomes. These are the markers on them. They're all mapped. As I said, it's a single afternoon assay, extremely powerful product. And it, it changes the whole uh, linkage analysis from one that is very tedious with looking at uh, you know, microsatellite type analysis to a simple hybridization in an afternoon. Um, to let you know, uh, we've, there are about 3,200 polymorphisms actually. We found as we screened through this, we'd find about one polymorphism, just looking through eight individuals, about one polymorphism around every 700 bases. So it's actually, you know, the genome is, is I guess you could argue either way. It's amazingly conserved, but there's also a lot of variation. Um, and, and the variation that you find when you look through a simple group of, say, eight people, it doesn't really matter which group of eight, as long as they're sort of randomly um, chosen, that you pick. These are very ancient polymorphisms. The, the, the simple fact that you find them in 20 to 50% of people means that they had to have, you know, for any particular polymorphism, means that they have to have been, they have to be very, very ancient to have survived through all these years and to be present at that level in the population. And in fact, we've done studies where we've actually gone back and looked into primates for some of these, and we find many of them in, in primates. Um, so um, uh, these are mapped, as I mentioned. Uh, uh, the maps are around 2,500, and the average spacing is about one and a half centimorgans, which turns out to be about one and a half megabases in uh, humans. Um, there's, they're actually rather uniformly uh, spaced. There's a few large spaces still left, gaps in the chromosomes, around 41 of them that are over 10 centimorgans, uh, very few that are, that are really large. And of course, over time, what we'll do is we'll just fill these in. Now, this, this sort of opens up a, a question about how really broadly can you use this technology and can you start really thinking about, as we go through the, the databases of DNA, can we really start to screen uh, for human diversity? And I want you just to consider 
a sort of a traditional approach to this and what the real problem is. If you consider, say, 50,000 genes, and there's you know, likely to be more like 100,000, um, there's already over 50,000 fragments in the public databases, and you just conservatively say there's 1,000 bases per gene, and you want to look at 200 people, the numbers work out easy here, so I, I use this one. Turns out that's a problem of looking at 10 to the 10th bases. That's three times the size of the human genome problem. Okay. Huge, hard problem. I mean, it's, it's hard to justify the expense uh, to go after this. Now, however, think about what happens on chips. If you take 50,000 genes, 1,000 bases per gene, that's 50 megabases. Well, I've already showed you experiments where we're doing it at 30, mega, or at 30 kilobases. Okay? So if you assume you can do 50 kilobases per chip, that turns out to be a thousand different chip designs, and you just simply make 200 copies of each. Okay? So it transforms, this technology starts to transform how you actually take massive amounts of genetic information and, and write it on chips. It's, like a, it's almost like a CD-ROM. You, know, you, you take a big database and you write it down on these chips, and then you can just screen with them. Okay? Um, and, of course, I wouldn't tell you that if we weren't already doing it. This is uh, uh, 50 kilobases uh, on a chip. Uh, and you can see this, this is not the commercial variety. This has got roughly half a million probes per chip. And there's no reason why you can't go larger and higher resolution than that. And I'll speak about that in, in a few minutes. Um, uh, there's uh, some studies that are ongoing right now using this approach. Uh, for example, with uh, Aravinda Chakavarti at Case Western, uh, where we, for example, have been looking in, into hypertension. And uh, what he's done is he's taken if you, if you take a look at the distribution of, uh, of, of uh, blood pressure, what you find is you find a bell-shaped distribution if you look at different populations. So what he did was he took you know, the top 10% and bottom 10% of, of, uh, of this bell curve and started to look at individuals uh, over a series of genes. And it turns out we're looking at 75 genes that are known to have, or thought to be implicated somehow in hypertension. Uh, and looking over uh, pretty deeply into some populations, 40 African, 35 European samples, plus doing some primate studies to take a look at, at how far back some of these, uh, some of this diversity goes. And um, just to, again, give you an idea, now in, you know, simultaneously 75 people, or however many that was, you're looking at all 75 of these genes just simultaneously. Now this Data has, is just about uh, is just submitted for publication, and I talked to Aravinda, and he wouldn't let me talk about it. So, but but what I want to tell you is there's some really nice results that have come out of this that have that have, have now shown uh, uh, what the frequency of these polymorphisms are, uh, both in different populations and also uh, uh, back evolutionarily. Um, so I want to summarize this part a little bit, and uh, just again to to bring it back home. When you think about human diversity and you think about, as we go through the genome and find these different polymorphisms, these different changes, what are we going to be able to do with them? Well, one is this linkage type thing where we can take family studies where we can watch inheritance patterns of different genes. And this is done at relatively low density. This is like this 2,000 SNP chip that I just showed you. Uh, and you, you get rather wide swaths through the genome, but what it allows you to do is in a very tightly linked family study, watch blocks of DNA being transferred from parent to sibling and isolate, you know, which, which pieces, which characteristics are going with which pieces of DNA. Uh, as you go to higher, um, the, the basic take-home message here is 
as you go to, as you want to look at more unrelated people, you need more information. And this makes sense. Uh, to go to, for example, you can start looking at regional areas where you're looking at groups of polymorphisms and doing this thing called disequilibrium mapping to watch when these groups of polymorphisms no longer uh, inherit with each other or associated with each other. And there you need a, a higher resolution to the genome. And finally, if you want to take this all the way to what are called association studies, what you'd really like to do is to look at the single base resolution and you'd like to relate specific genetic changes to specific changes, okay? And of course, this will be the ultimate goal as we start to go through this, and, and, and I'll come back to that in a few minutes um, about how we're going to approach it. Um, I'd like to switch gears uh, just for a second and talk about one of the other areas, and this is watching and looking at mRNA. Um, and this is, of course, um, expression monitoring. And now, if you think about, you know, 100,000 genes, what makes a, a white blood cell different from a, um, a muscle cell? It's because, you know, different genes are turned on. Of course, when you stimulate different uh, cells, you might expect with a drug, for example, different genes to be um, um, uh, regulated, so on. So if you had a way to actually take a look at all these genes simultaneously, it would be a pretty powerful thing to do. And I think probably many of you are, are familiar with, the, with this type of approach. Um, but what I want to do is to use this as a segue into how a different chip design can actually also go into the human diversity question. So we've made a series of these, and these happen to be, actually, to be quite frank, uh, the money makers for the company. Um, people are extremely interested in taking the, the database of, of genes, putting them on chips, and screening for all sorts of activity. And so the, the issue is in a mammalian cell, you know, there's around... 30,000 genes that might be activated in any particular cell. Okay, and this turns out to be about 40 megabases of sequence that's on at any particular time. And what you'd like to do is to be able to determine the relative levels of mRNA that is produced. Right? And you'd like to do that very accurately. In fact, if you could, you'd like to be able to see a, you know, one or two copies per cell. You'd like to be able to tickle a cell, see a gene turn on, and in the background of all this different pool of mRNA that's making proteins and so on, you'd like to be able to see one or two copies of a particular gene that comes on. So this is work that David Lockhart at Affymetrics really pioneered, and uh, it works pretty well. Um, so again, the idea is you have a cell, it's stimulated, and you capture the poly A tailed uh, mRNA out of this. Okay, and there's some tricks that you can do to label it up and so on, hybridize it to a chip. And uh, uh, the, the design is a little bit different because now we don't have to have single base resolution all, the, all over the place. Uh, what you want to do is you just want to take different frames of genes, and so you can put many, many, many different genes on a particular chip. And uh, this just gives you a real simple idea how it looks. Remember, all you got to really do is look at the intensity at this point. Uh, this is just a really simple uh, thing that we did with uh, Genetics Institute. Uh, in the early days where you, you take some simple genes and you put them on the chip, you hybridize their message, you see everything light up. You do things like you say, well, here's some of them on there and, and not some, and you get the patterns you expect, and here's the others on them and not those. And so, you, you know, it all qualitatively works very well. Uh, and Lockhart's really done a fantastic job of doing very, very quantitative uh, studies with this where actually the intensities, the light intensities that you get off in this fluorescence really relate to the concentration 
of the RNA. And in fact, you can go down into several copies per cell because you have a very large dynamic range. Uh, and so the system works, works actually quite well. And this, of course, probably accounts for 80% you know, of our sales in this area, aside from the science. Um, you can do some really neat things. You can look at dynamics because you can do such quantitative things. <laughs> this is, this is a, a set of experiments, again, that we did with Genetics Institute. They actually paid us to do this in the early days, um, um, which is nice. Um, and this, is a, this, is a, uh, uh, this was a uh, murine T cell that when you hit it with a calcium ionophore and a, and a four ball ester, produces gamma interferon, so it spits out this protein. And, and so if you, that's what happens at the protein level. If you look at the nucleic acid level, what you see is you can start to look dynamic. You can watch the gene turn on, okay? So here's zero, two, six, and 24 hours after stimulation. Here's what you see. The gene level of gamma interferon goes from very nominal, turns on, goes way on, and then dies back down. So what this offers the opportunity is not only in development, but in drug stimulation and so on watch the evolution of these genes. You can start to watch the pathways and deconvolve all this information. So it's, so it's a very uh, interesting application of, of the technology. Um, you do things, uh, this is a very popular chip that we sell that is, has around 6,800 human genes on it. Okay? Uh, and these are basically most of the genes that have a name. Okay? I mean, everybody talks about all the sequences out there and so on. Turns out there's really only around 6,000 genes that even have a name. And um, so this has most of the genes that have a name, as the genes that uh, have uh, some function known uh, and so on, or a sequence known. You can do things, very simple things like you know, expression profiling, normal and malignant breast epithelium. I'm just showing you some, there's been a lot of things published on this, but this is really simple. Where, for example, if you look at a normal cell line, you find genes that are normally turned on and so on uh, uh, throughout it, things that are shut down. You look at malignant cell lines, you see whole things that are shut down, whole unique classes of genes that are turned on, and you find a lot of variable regulation too. So there's, again, there's a whole other issue of data analysis, of databasing, and so on, and these sorts of things. Um, we've gone through uh, many of the public databases to do this kind of stuff. Uh, this is a set of murine genes for model organisms, for mouse, where you see 11,000 different uh, ESTs that are on a couple of chips. Uh, again, through, uh, uh, I forget which one's which, one's a tiger database and one's a, uh, um, the, the regular public one. There's, this is, uh, again, another set that goes through around 19,000 mouse genes. There's a set of humans that basically condenses the entire public database of 40,000 human genes down on a set of chips. Okay. And you can do the simultaneous monitoring for these things. Um, the entire yeast sequence of yeast is known, and so the entire organism is put on these chips. Uh, same with E. coli, and this is in fact probably one of the most sophisticated chip designs, uh, because not only has the sequence of E. coli been known, when we went through and, uh, and uh, built a chip that went through all the, uh, the reading frames of, of E. coli, plus a lot of the areas that nobody really knows what they do, uh, there's also so much room still left on this chip that you could add the F-plasmid, lambda genes. P1, M13, P, uh, PBR322, all on this chip, okay? And this was done, I should mention, in collaboration with uh, Fred Blattner and George Church, and, uh, and there it is. So it's a really fantastic thing you can do. And probably the sort of granddaddy of them all currently uh, is this chip 
that actually a single chip that has 40,000, over 40,000 ESTs on, on a single chip. So there's really an incredible number of things you can do with this. And it, and, but it all points to the same thing. You're collecting massive amounts of, of, of genetic data. Now, another thing that uh, was unexpected, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to introduce this, uh, this, this other high-density information area, was these yeast chips that we made. Uh, Elizabeth Windsor at um, Ron Davis's lab at Stanford started to use these. Uh, what, what we originally meant to be uh, chips to look at expression profiles in yeast. And it turns out that there's so much of the yeast genome on these chips that she decided to use it to see whether or not she could pick up diversity in yeast. And this will come back to the human in just a second. So what she did was she took um, the laboratory strain that the yeast, that the chip was designed against, and then she took a clinical isolate uh, that was actually from an immune-compromised individual okay, that had some different uh, characteristics. And she just simply hybridized these two different isolates to two different chips and then compared these data. And what she found was she could find allelic variation all over the place. And since we knew the sequence of the yeast genome, essentially what she did was they had a method to go in and find these markers in a very, very simple approach. and. Uh, and it turned out that she found more markers in one hybridization than in the past 40 years of yeast genetics. Okay? And again, this was, a, this was a paper that was published in Science earlier this year. So we started been working on, well, how do we start to apply this type of principle to humans? Uh, and what we're starting to do now is to start to look at whole genome or whole chromosome assays on these chips, where we're actually uh, digesting up whole chromosomes and, and hybridizing it. And in fact, uh, we're scaling this to, to genomic size studies. And right now, since almost the entire sequence of human chromosome 17 is known, we're actually making a set of chips that contain the sequence for chromosome 17. And we're going we're gonna to follow this up. Now see, what happens once you have this sequence, there are a lot of fantastic things. Because again, they just go into the database. They're in the database. You download them on chips. And so you know the human sequencing activity any activity that people do in this area to generate sequence, you know, to us is just a blessing. Right? And so you take an entire chromosome, you know, it, it comes into, you know, what will these chips look like in the future? Will you put, you know, will they be chromosome by chromosome? Will they take, will they be random pieces to the genome? There'll be all sorts of different flavors of these things. Um, another area that you should start thinking about is, you know, what we talked about is, is this sort of uh, technology on a bench top, right, where you've got, you know, a big reader and, you know, we sell chips through it and so on. The goal will be, of course, to make this very accessible and very portable. And the question is, can we start to integrate in a lot of the molecular biology right on board on the chip? And uh, we've been fortunate enough to have a pretty large uh, grant from the, um, from NIST or the Advanced Technology Program uh, to, to work on this. And so we're starting to integrate in the fluidics and the prep right onto the chip. And in fact, uh, the way that works is that uh, we're, we're building systems now, uh, prototypes, that you can put a sample on and they, the microfluidics go right in, it, the DNA gets extracted, gets amplified, it gets labeled and fragmented, and it goes directly onto the chip, right on the chip package itself. Okay? So now when you start to think about you know, where will this go, it'll go into point of care, it'll be dispersed. The, the units will be small. And in fact, 
uh, this, we've, we've shown that uh, with the HIV system in doing uh, all the way from, from blood to detection. In fact, people call it bleed and read, is what they call it. Um, but anyway, it's, 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 it's definitely going there. Now, um, what I'd like to do, I think, is um, I, I'm just going to wrap up here to <clears throat> uh, I hope I've, I've shown you that there's an incredible number of things you can do with this technology. Um, there will be an uh, uh, incredible number of chips and commercial opportunities for these. The name of the game really is information density with this. Is it's, it's very clear, as I mentioned, the analogy with the CD-ROM. You can just download the sequence onto this stuff and, and, and use them. And the name of the game is really going to be for the future to go to higher and higher resolution, greater and greater portability in the technology. Um, and uh, this is just gives you an idea, of course, you know, we're, we're, we commercialize things right now in sort of this 20 to 50 micron range, which allows you to look, as I mentioned, up to around 100 KB of sequence. Uh, lots of genes, this is actually dated now, uh, you know, because I showed you a, a chip that was up to 40,000. Uh, but it allows you to look at lots of markers simultaneously and so on, and actually this is dated. Uh, but the point is still there that you go to higher resolution, you get more information density. And in fact, uh, we've also been working on pushing the technology to higher resolution. And this is in fact uh, now where we've worked out some chemistry to go to very small features. Uh, here's five microns and here's two microns. Okay. Now, if you think about what this with the semiconductor industry, you know, we've been talking about 20 micron stuff. You know, half a million probes is a lot of probes. At the same time, you know, a Pentium chip is fabricated down at around 0.3 microns. Okay, so we've got you know a lot of technology we can borrow to push this uh, at two microns. I mean, just to put this in perspective, okay, at two microns, if you say you take a chip instead of a, a, a dime, you make it the size of a nickel. That doesn't mean it's going to be cheaper, right? But you make it about the size of a nickel, and at two micron resolutions, you can put 10 to the eighth synthesis sites on that size chip, okay? So 10 to the 8 synthesis sites, if you put a 30 mer at every position, that's 3 times 10 to the 9th bases. Okay, that's the size of the human genome. Okay, so we're very rapidly going to be pushing the technology to, to, to this sort of capacity. And um, I, I think that when we do that, uh, we're, it, it'll be essentially um, uh, uh, anybody's game as to what sort of chips that you design and so on. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to make a couple comments. I think, you know, a lot of times we think about um, what are the uh, sort of dark side of this ethical issue and so on. And, and part of the ethical issue, too, is what are the good things we can do. And, you know, we think a lot about the commercial applications, and quite frankly, mostly we think about the pharmaceutical type applications, and and I think that's that's pretty good because, you know, very often, you know, I sort of think about these things in terms of uh, there are very serious things that we can approach. You know, we can talk about BRCA1, you know, breast cancer applications. We can talk about P53, cystic fibrosis, you know, heart disease, um, uh, uh, hypertension, and so on. So these are very serious health issues, I, I think, is one point uh, that we do go after. It also turns out there's, there's lifestyle. There's simple lifestyle issues. You know, there's, there's diet. There's metabolism. 
There's uh, vitamin biosynthesis. How good are you? How good are you at synthesizing particular vitamins? Do you need supplements? Um, there's issues about you know our children. Do we want to know uh, when we screen our children? What are their aptitudes? Do they have you know, perfect pitch to be a musician? Are they you know are there learning aptitudes that are connected with some of these things? I think those are those are things that I think people may or may not want to know, and um, I think. Personally, as a parent, I'd, I'd probably want to know that uh, because if I could, I would want to take advantage of it. Um, there are things of a commercial nature. You know, I think when you start to think about you know olfaction, smell, is there are there genetic components to these? Is the perfume industry going to be interested into whether or not there are different genetic preferences for smells? Okay, would people be interested in whether or not a potential partner? would be interested in particular smells. I don't know, you know, maybe. Um, so, so again, I, I think, you know, or, or even downstream, you know, will the marketing people get a hold of this information? Will they start thinking about how to market products according to genetics? So, you know, a lot of this, so from a technical point of view, these things are obviously going to be possible. The question is, how is the data, how are the data going to be used and in what fashion? And I, and I think also, you know, there's also, gonna, there's going to be fun things you know, that people may uh, think are fun, which are, you know, genetic trees. You know, would you like to have, you know, run your extended family's chips on one of these maps so you could have a poster that shows, you know, here's grandma and grandpa on, you know, here's how the, here's how the chromosomes disperse throughout the family tree. And, you know, oh my God, this poor kid's going to have Uncle Fred's ears, you know? I mean, there's, there's a number of things that you can do. Of course, you might find out that it's really not Uncle Fred's kid, right? But, so... So there's a lot of issues that you, that you have to think about in this. Um, but I think these, these sort of ideas, people doing database queries about, you know, how do they compare to the rest of the world, you know, these sort of educational issues, to me, um, will start to desensitize a lot of these issues. As people start to have lots of different successes, um, I believe it will desensitize these issues. And, and when you think about the commercial applications, uh, when people start to think about how can we... Uh, take advantage of the diversity and use in, in a normal sense of life, people will become desensitized about the differences between all of us because everybody has huge diversity. So anyway, that's my opinion on these things and uh, thanks for your attention. So I don't know what you want to do. Okay, I'm going to pass the microphone, I guess. Mother, please. And sort of like the Gattaca thing, huh? Yeah. You know, part, I mean, in technically the things are possible right now. I mean, just absolutely. Um, what's the motivation for it is the question. You know, in 
in you know, I, I would, and one of the reasons why I showed you the stuff in bacteriology and so on is that's where it will happen first. There's a high motivation there in bacteriology, in water testing, and this sort of stuff, environmental testing, where people want to have point of sight type applications. Um, the motivation isn't there uh, right now for you know the, the police to stop you for a traffic violation and run your DNA. Um, hopefully, it won't be there for a while. Um, the, uh, it is possible right now to make these fully integrated devices. Uh, they're prototypes, they're lab prototypes. Uh, the market is just not there right now to commit the money to put them into full production. And so I, I think the way that you will see these things really come through will be in the, in the water testing and in the bacteriology field, in which case this sort of point of site testing will be done first. But I would say, you know, quite frankly, that it'll probably be in the three to five year time frame uh, before you see it introduced into that field. Yeah. Well, the fully integrated one, that's why I say it's, it's they're prototypes. It's, you know, chips themselves. Um, you know, the sort of, in the, the, the cost of production is a different one. The, the cost of what it costs people to use uh, in, in bacteriology and so on it's probably going to be around fifty to a hundred dollars. Okay. Yeah. The dark side. Well, you know, I, I think you know, it's it's easy for me to say that you know it's it's not the technology, it's how people use it, you know, and that's sort of the easy answer. Um, but that's sort of like guns aren't the problem, it's people that shoot. Um, I actually believe, though, that it's going to be an issue of how people use the data and, and, how, and, and what happens to the data. And, you know, to me, a lot of this comes into the personal privacy issue. Um, I actually firmly believe that in not only in genetic information, but also in healthcare information, we need to get to a point where people own their own data okay? and people control what's done with their data, just as what happens in, um, uh, you know, it's, you sign a check, you know, you own your own checking account, you own your own social security, you own your signature, right? People can't take that away from you. And I think right now, that's sort of not the system we're in. We're in a system where, you know, the HMOs think they own your medical information. And I, I think, you know, to me, a big help would be to get to a, a state where people actually were in control of their own information. If you had an extensive genetic test or something, uh, I'd like to see a, a, a world where um, the individual gets that information back and they think about how they want to use it. And they find out, they educate themselves about what it means, and then they make an informed decision about who they want to give it to. It's not, you know, some big organization that's, screening them, databasing it, and then telling them what to do. So I don't know. That's, that's how I feel. Of course, if in the present system, I think there are a lot of concerns about invasion of privacy and uh, what people will do with the genetic information, uh, whether there will be discriminations, and so on. So. Uh, the decode effort. Well, I, I'm not sure um, uh, how much... I can comment about it. It's um, an effort that I think many of you may know, maybe not, about the um, the Icelandic government views their um, 
population and genetic samples is sort of a, a national treasure, and um, uh, they have uh, undergone. They're beginning to undergo a, a mass. They have, they have obvious. Well, what happened in Iceland was there was a founder foundation that came in, uh, and a population. And of course, the, over the years, the population has grown up from a very small group of founder individuals. And so it turns out the pedigrees of all these individuals are very well known. And the government has used has has now taken the position that this is a national uh, asset, and a lot of people agree. And they've created a company, Decode Genetics, to to start to take advantage of this to go under massive mass uh, mapping uh, exercises to be able to trace back these um, uh, traits and so on. So I don't know what else I can comment about it. Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah, I, I guess there, I guess the view is uh, that, it's a, that it's a national asset. Uh, apparently, a lot of people have bought onto it. I believe it's a voluntary program, uh, but they also keep the data within Iceland. So all the commercial benefit and so on comes back in large part to the Icelandic people. Um, so it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, it's like a large extended family. If they, if they really, a group of people can get together and make their uh, genetics an asset, uh, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. For college, um, my question is regarding how many times can you use one of these chips? In other words, what's its shelf life before it has to be replaced? <laughs> you want to buy some? <laughs> Um, I know it's a good question, and it's one I get asked a lot. Um, you can use them over, but of course, you know, we don't like you to. And um, uh, but there's good reasons for that, uh, aside from the profit motive. Um, you know, especially when you when you start to talk about putting clinical samples on these things, you then have to worry about a whole new set of issues in terms of contamination and so on. You know, did you get all the rest of the old the sample off and so on? And um, um, the the shelf life is that the other question? Um, the shelf life. Again, that's a, essentially a production issue. The once you make the chip or say the wafer, and it's on the glass, uh, it's basically indefinite as far as we can tell. Um, you can store these things and then slice them up and package them whenever you want. When you, after you package them, there's other issues that you have to worry about, you know, outgassing of, of plastics and, uh, you know, things that absorb to the surface and things that, you know, decay the performance over time. So it's sort of, it, you know, it's a hardcore chemistry piece, which is the, the, the oligonucleotides on glass. And then afterwards, if you chop them and package them, you've got packaging issues that have their own um, uh, problems. So, uh, I think we, I'm not sure what the current shelf life is, six to nine months or something right now, something like that. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of depends, again, on, on, on where you are. In this country, there's not much regulation on that. Uh, in places in Europe and so on, you recycle them. And uh, in fact, um, that's pretty commonplace in many places at this point. Uh, they are recyclable plastics and so on, uh, and a very small piece of glass. So I think um, there's certainly every opportunity to, to do recycling with these things. 
I'm taking a uh, DNA. Oh, I'm taking a DNA computing class here, where we're exploring uh, using DNA to solve mathematical problems. And I was wondering if your chips had, um, if you thought your chips could be used um, in such applications. Um, you know, I, they they obviously the chips can be used anytime you need to determine a sequence. Okay, so certainly they can be used to de decode a complex mixture of nucleic acids. Um, you know, people have thought of a lot of clever um, you know, sort of uh, uh, you know, surface propagation of different types of molecules and so on by coupling in some enzyme chemistry and you know, building a new molecule, sort of like thermocycling, you know, melting them off and letting other things happen on chips. Uh, how practical it is, I have no idea. But you can certainly use them for the detection part. Uh, but I don't think, um, well, I don't know of anyone that's come up with a, a strategy to, to sort of, you know, build a processing DNA sequence algorithm or something on the chips. Uh, to my knowledge yet, I don't know if anyone's really done that. Hi, uh, Scott Pugh from Bucknell University. Um, I think the, uh, the values of the technology for diagnosis and detection and information gathering is very apparent. Um, has there been any discussion about the possible role of the technology in therapy, or would you like to theorize on that at all? Um, in terms of what what type of therapy? Yeah. Uh, any kind? Any, any type of therapy at all? Well, there, there's different. You know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, diagnostics is a funny word when you start to really get heavy into this uh, genome area, and I think, you know, Francis said it in a little bit different way yesterday. Um, you know, what is the borderline between even, you know, basic research and applied research in this area? It starts to get really fuzzy. And, and diagnostics or therapy starts to get in the, in the same realm. Um, certainly when you say, you look at the, the HIV type thing that we talked about, there um, you're doing a genetic analysis for the purpose of determining which therapy is best, okay? So is that a diagnostic test? Well, maybe. Is it a therapeutic test? Well, yeah. Okay. It's also good to not talk about diagnostics because the margins are horrible. Right? Um, the the other part, though, is in when you start to look at, at at clinical samples. Okay. You start to look in the clinic. Say you want to do genotyping to start to segregate for you know this field that we call pharmacogenetics. Um, you know which patients match with which drugs. Um, uh, when you start to look in the expression field, you know, what is the tox effect of these different drugs on the different expression patterns and so on. So I think they're, they're, they're very intimately tied in. I'm Brian Starr from the University of Notre Dame. Um, I was wondering what you think the uh, technological plausibility and the possible ethical implications are of using your technology as a means of um, like a regulated form of identification, kind of you know applying a barcode, like you said, to just sort of everybody? Well, I think that's, that's a natural consequence of the technology. There's no question. Um, it, to me, it's going to be a question of, you know, how these things are used. I mean, for example, we've been approached several times by uh, the military because of the dog tag issue, right? And the, the challenge here is, is it is a natural for the technology, but these sort of 
these these areas such as you know forensics or identification uh, tend to be uh, very slow moving fields okay you know the pharmaceutical area on the other hand tends to adopt things very very quickly um, if you talk about you know FBI or you know military or forensics they tend to be very very slow about adoption and in fact um, I, I believe that they're I, I don't know if they're using RFLP or what they're using at this point uh, in their databases I mean it's very old technologies it's you know you even get into arguments with some of these guys whether PCR works okay so they don't adopt this very quickly and so that's why I was commenting earlier I think you know the applications of this stuff will be first where people want to you know it's not going to be in human identity testing for you know big brother issues it's going to be for you know water testing bacterial antibiotic resistance and this sort of stuff where people really want to use it um, but I think ultimately you know even today you know if I, I think it's RFLP I can't remember the, the database that they're building I think the the FBI or somebody is committed to doing this at this point and they're using old technology um, and uh, it's uh, um, you know they're they're doing it but it's very cumbersome and I believe it'll take them quite a while to change maybe I'm wrong but I that's been my experience thank you um, is amplification a necessary step in this procedure before running on the chip? Well, that's a great question. And if um, so, there's a second part. Okay. Is there, is there, with your emphasis on rapidity, would not an artifact? I'm sorry. With, a, with, with your a, emphasis on rapidity, on high uh, yield, yeah. would not an artifact in a lab be a serious problem and could potentially wreak havoc on your results for X number of people? Okay, so there's two. There's so first of all, right now, and and I didn't mention a lot of this. For example, in the clinical world, we have a relationship with Roche Molecular Systems, okay, where in fact we are going into the clinical markets with PCR and with chips, okay. So, so clearly, using amplification is a is a is a very powerful combination with the chip. There's no question because you can clean up the sample incredibly by doing that, okay, and it, it, it solves a lot of issues. Um, do you have to? It depends. Um, uh, if you take a, you know, we have done things with direct mRNA labeling in various species. Um, we are doing things now with, with whole chromosome fragmentation and so on, but of course you need to do then chromosome cell sort, you know, essentially sorting. Um, we still do want to use some amplification um, in the and so I don't know what the final answer to that is yet okay we will clearly move though towards less and less amplification but clinically I think that you will always for, for the foreseeable future couple in the amplification then you come into your contamination issue and there's that brings up you know one of the comments I made about reuse it's one of the reasons why you don't reuse number one and then there's um, there's sort of two different levels of the contamination. One is that um, you know you actually have a contaminated different sample of the same gene, okay, and that's what you have to prevent. And that's definitely why you don't want to reuse these things. The other is that you have some spurious contamination, which is just a different sequence. That probably won't hurt you because the chips are so specific to the sequences that they're designed against. So I think that's that's kind of how you weigh it. Yeah, Andy Goodman, Princeton University. I'm wondering, 
um, if you think there should be regulation on using these chips for prenatal screening. And if there is, like, what, what sort of things should be allowed to be screened for, and also how that information should be used, and whether it's a parent's choice or the hospital's choice, as to how uh, information on prenatal screening with DNA chips could be used. And well, again, um, you know, prenatal screening is it's a bigger question than just these chips. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I actually, um, again, come down to, to this issue about, um, uh, about the personal privacy on these things. Um, I'm not an advocate whatsoever of, you know, hospitals or healthcare organizations doing the screening and databasing and then sort of letting you know what your options are. Um, I, I think the best approach is that, uh, and in this case it would certainly be at the parents' level, uh, that there's some a pretty strong privacy around these issues, that people get the information themselves, if at all, uh, in this case, um, and um, judge what their options are and what they want to do, but the, the information is actually in their control. Um, I think it has to, the levels of privacy, I think, have to be pretty high. On behalf of the Bioethics Forum, we'd like to thank Dr. Fodor for his speech this morning that was certainly thought-provoking and thorough. Um, and with such rapid advances as Affymetrics, we thank you for taking your time this morning to come and join us. Um, it is now my pleasure to introduce the preceptors for this morning. If they are in attendance, could they please rise when I call your names? John Aris is the Porterfield Professor of Biomedical Ethics, Professor of Philosophy, and Director of the Bioethics Minor Program at the University of Virginia. Judy Chambers is the Director of International Government Affairs at the Monsanto Corporation. Robert Donaldson is the David Page Smith Emeritus Professor of Medicine and former Deputy Dean and Vice Chair of the Yale Medical School. Carl Feldbaum is President of the Biotechnology Industry Organization. Norman Foss is the Director of the Program in Medical Ethics and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Audi Kao is Research Director for the Institute of Ethics at the American Medical Association. Alan Keller is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at the New York University School of Medicine and director of the Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture. Donald Light is a visiting professor of comparative healthcare systems at the University of Pennsylvania. Ruth Macklin is professor of bioethics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and co-chair of the National Advisory Board on Ethics in Reproduction. Leon Rosenberg is the former CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb and now a professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and in the Department of Molecular Biology here at Princeton University. Lainey Ross is at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago. And finally, Burton Singer of the Office of Population Research at Princeton University and the former dean of the Yale University School of Public Health. 
Thank you very much for joining us this morning. The next event is going to be the precepts. There's coffee in Wig Hall before then, if you'd like, upstairs. And then at 11 a.m., down at the bottom of the stairs of Wig Hall, you can meet with the Princeton students who will be holding signs to direct you to your precepts. Thank you very much for coming this morning.